Greetings, detective. Welcome to the Murder Mystery Company and our new free service, Calm Mystery. We know that many of you need that calm and centered moment, but meditation isn't necessarily your thing. If you're a mystery lover, a crime fan, and could use a break, you've come to the right place. It sure is a suspenseful world out there, but I have good news for you. In this world, the only suspense will come from the world's best writers. For the next few minutes, we're going to close the door on the outside world. First, find a comfortable chair, sofa, or bed. Take a moment to just relax into that spot. Let your body sink in, slowly releasing the day's tension. Just relax. You've earned this time. You need this time for you. Your body will thank you. Now let's take a moment to clear your mind. I want you to focus on two things. My voice and your breathing. Take a deep breath in through your nose. Let it out slowly through your mouth. Now the same thing, but let's breathe on my count. Three counts in and four counts out. Breathe in one, two, three. Now out one, two, three, four. As we do this, you're going to slowly relax more and be perfectly ready for tonight's dastardly tale. Now again, breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. One more time, breathing out the last bit of stress. Breathe in, one, two, three. Now out, one, two, three, four. Excellent. Tonight's tale of mystery, intrigue, and murder is truly spine-tingling. This installment... The Problem of Cell 13 by Jacques Futrell. Read by Perry F. Bruns. Chapter 2 Chisholm Prison was a great spreading structure of granite, four stories in all, which stood in the center of acres of open space. It was surrounded by a wall of solid masonry eighteen feet high and so smoothly finished inside and out as to offer no foothold to a climber, no matter how expert. Atop of this fence, as a further precaution, was a five-foot fence of steel rods, each terminating in a keen point. This fence in itself marked an absolute deadline between freedom and imprisonment, for, even if a man escaped from his cell, it would seem impossible for him to pass the wall. 
The yard, which on all sides of the prison building was twenty-five feet wide, that being the distance from the building to the wall, was by day an exercise ground for those prisoners to whom was granted the boon of occasional semi-liberty. But that was not for those in cell 13. At all times of the day there were armed guards in the yard, four of them, one patrolling each side of the prison building. By night the yard was almost as brilliantly lighted as by day. On each of the four sides was a great arc light, which rose above the prison wall and gave to the guards a clear sight. The lights, too, brightly illuminated the spiked top of the wall. The wires which fed the arc lights ran up the side of the prison building on insulators, and from the top story led out to the poles supporting the arc lights. All these things were seen and comprehended by the thinking machine, who was only enabled to see out his closely barred cell window by standing on his bed. This was on the morning following his incarceration. He gathered, too, that the river lay over there beyond the wall somewhere, because he heard faintly the pulsation of a motorboat, and high up in the air saw a river bird. From that same direction came the shouts of boys at play, and the occasional crack of a batted ball. He knew then that between the prison wall and the river was an open space, a playground. Chisholm Prison was regarded as absolutely safe. No man had ever escaped from it. The thinking machine, from his perch on the bed, seeing what he saw, could readily understand why. The walls of the cell, though built, he judged, twenty years before, were perfectly solid and the window-bars of new iron had not a shadow of rust on them. The window itself, even with the bars out, would be a difficult mode of egress because it was small. Yet, seeing these things, the thinking machine was not discouraged. Instead, he thoughtfully squinted at the great arc light. There was bright sunlight now and traced with his eyes the wire which led from it to the building. That electric wire, he reasoned, must come down the side of the building not a great distance from his cell. That might be worth knowing. Cell 13 was on the same floor with the offices of the prison, that is, not in the basement nor yet upstairs, there were only four steps up to the office floor. Therefore, the level of the floor must be only three or four feet above the ground. He couldn't see the ground directly beneath his window, but he could see it further out toward the wall. It would be an easy drop from the window. Well and good. Then the thinking machine fell to remembering how he had come to the cell. First, there was the outside guard's booth, a part of the wall. There were two heavily barred gates there, both of steel, 
At this gate was one man always on guard. He admitted persons to the prison after much clanking of keys and locks, and let them out when ordered to do so. The warden's office was in the prison building, and in order to reach that official from the prison yard, one had to pass a gate of solid steel with only a peephole in it. Then, coming from that inner office to cell 13, where he was now, one must pass a heavy wooden door and two steel doors into the corridors of the prison. And always there was the double-locked door of cell 13 to reckon with. There were then, the thinking machine recalled, seven doors to be overcome before one could pass from cell 13 into the outer world, a free man. But against this was the fact that he was rarely interrupted. A jailer appeared at his cell door at six in the morning, with a breakfast of prison fare. He would come again at noon, and again at six in the afternoon. At nine o'clock at night would come the inspection tour. That would be all. It's admirably arranged, this prison system, was the mental tribute paid by the thinking machine. I'll have to study it a little when I get out. I had no idea there was such great care exercised in the prisons. There was nothing, positively nothing in his cell, except his iron bed, so firmly put together that no man could tear it to pieces save with sledges or a file. He had neither of these. There was not even a chair or a small table or a bit of tin or crockery. Nothing. The jailer stood by when he ate, then took away the wooden spoon and bowl which he had used. One by one, these things sank into the brain of the thinking machine. When the last possibility had been considered, he began an examination of his cell. From the roof, down the walls on all sides, he examined the stones and the cement between them. He stamped over the floor carefully, time after time. But it was cement, perfectly solid. After the examination, he sat on the edge of the iron bed and was lost in thought for a long time. For Professor Augustus S.F.X. Van Dusen, the thinking machine, had something to think about. He was disturbed by a rat which ran across his foot, then scampered away into a dark corner of the cell, frightened at its own daring. After a while, the thinking machine, squinting steadily into the darkness of the corner where the rat had gone, was able to make out in the gloom many little beady eyes staring at him. He counted six pair, and there were perhaps others he didn't see very well. Then the thinking machine, from his seat on the bed, noticed for the first time the bottom of his cell door. There was an opening there of two inches between the steel bar and the floor. Still looking steadily at this opening, 
The thinking machine backed suddenly into the corner where he had seen the beady eyes. There was a great scampering of tiny feet, several squeaks of frightened rodents, and then silence. None of the rats had gone out the door, yet there were none in the cell. Therefore, there must be another way out of the cell, however small. The thinking machine, on hands and knees, started a search for this spot, feeling in the darkness with his long, slender fingers. At last, his search was rewarded. He came upon a small opening in the floor, level with the cement. It was perfectly round and somewhat larger than a silver dollar. This was the way the rats had gone. He put his fingers deep into the opening. It seemed to be a disused drainage pipe and was dry and dusty. Having satisfied himself on this point, he sat on the bed again for an hour, then made another inspection of his surroundings through the small cell window. One of the outside guards stood directly opposite, beside the wall, and happened to be looking at the window of cell 13 when the head of the thinking machine appeared. But the scientist didn't notice the guard. Noon came, and the jailer appeared with the prison dinner of repulsively plain food. At home, the thinking machine merely ate to live. Here he took what was offered without comment. Occasionally he spoke to the jailer who stood outside the door watching him. "'Any improvements made here in the last few years?' he asked. "'Nothing particularly,' replied the jailer. "'New wall was built four years ago.' "'Anything done to the prison proper?' "'Painted the woodwork outside, and I believe about seven years ago a new system of plumbing was put in.' "'Ah!' said the prisoner. "'How far is the river over there?' "'About three hundred feet.' The boys have a baseball ground between the wall and the river. The thinking machine had nothing further to say just then, but when the jailer was ready to go, he asked for some water. I get very thirsty here, he explained. Would it be possible for you to leave a little water in a bowl for me? I'll ask the warden, replied the jailer, and he went away. Half an hour later he returned with water in a small earthen bowl. "'The warden says you may keep this bowl,' he informed the prisoner. "'But you must show it to me when I ask for it. If it is broken, it'll be the last.' "'Thank you,' said the thinking machine. "'I shan't break it.' The jailer went on about his duties. For just the fraction of a second, it seemed that the thinking machine wanted to ask a question but he didn't. Two hours later, this same jailer, in passing the door of cell number 13, heard a noise inside and stopped. The thinking machine was down on his hands and knees in a corner of the cell, and from that same corner came several frightened squeaks. The jailer looked on interestedly. Ah, I've got you, he heard the prisoner say. "'Got what?' he asked sharply. "'One of these rats,' 
was the reply. See? And between the scientist's long fingers, the jailer saw a small gray rat struggling. The prisoner brought it over to the light and looked at it closely. It's a water rat, he said. Ain't you got anything better to do than to catch rats? asked the jailer. It's disgraceful that they should be here at all, was the irritated reply. Take this one away and kill it. There are dozens more where it came from. The jailer took the wriggling, squirmy rodent and flung it down on the floor violently. It gave one squeak and lay still. Later, he reported the incident to the warden, who only smiled. Still later that afternoon, the outside armed guard on cell 13 side of the prison looked up again at the window and saw the prisoner looking out. He saw a hand raised to the barred window, and then something white fluttered to the ground. Directly under the window of cell 13, it was a little roll of linen, evidently of white shirting material, and tied around it was a five-dollar bill. The guard looked up at the window again, but the face had disappeared. With a grim smile, he took the little linen roll and the five-dollar bill to the warden's office. There together they deciphered something which was written on it with a queer sort of ink, frequently blurred. On the outside was this. Finder of this, please deliver to Dr. Charles Ransom. Ah, said the warden with a chuckle. Plan of escape number one has gone wrong. Then as an afterthought, but why did he address it to Dr. Ransom? And where did he get the pen and ink to write with? asked the guard. The warden looked at the guard, and the guard looked at the warden. There was no apparent solution of that mystery. The warden studied the writing carefully, then shook his head. Well, let's see what he was going to say to Dr. Ransom, he said at length still puzzled, and he unrolled the inner piece of linen. Well, if that... What... What do you think of that? he asked, dazed. The guard took the bit of linen and read this. E-P-A-C-S-E-O-T D-apostrophe-N-E-T N I I Y A W E H T T O N apostrophe S I S I H period small quotes T. That's the end of Chapter Two of the Problem of Cell Thirteen by Jacques Futrell. While this is a longer story than our usual fare, we believe Futrell displays a particular vision for striking characters and tense situations, so we hope you'll stay with us all the way to the end of this classic escape story. Thank you for listening to Calm Mystery, a Murder Mystery Company production. 
To solve your own case with us, visit MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, and use code CALM, C-A-L-M, for $20 off your own murder mystery party. We have dozens of entertaining detectives. You can even ask for me, Perry, by name. If no one else can help, and if they can find me, maybe I can help you become Detective of the Night. That's MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, code CALM.